Please turn in your Bibles to Mark 9. Mark 9, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 2 through 29 this morning. Have you ever felt desperate and discouraged? Maybe as if you can't go on. Sometimes it seems like the darkness around you is so thick and so dark that you can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you wonder, can I even go on? Maybe it's your kid's health or behavior issues, and you think these things will never improve. Maybe you're dealing with infertility, or you're deeply lonely, or you're dealing with a discouraging job and there seems to be no way out. Maybe you have your own health problems, and sometimes it seems like the rest of your life might be resigned to suffering. Maybe one of your loved ones is blind and cold toward Jesus, and the thing you want most in the world is for them to reach out to Jesus. But they're making a mess of their lives with sin. And then you see that the fall is not just out there. The fall is in our very own families. It's in our very own hearts. And maybe you're even struggling with the, the unbelief and the sin in your own soul and wondering, am I going to be dealing with this? Will I, will I ever improve? And so you wonder, how can I even go on with this type of darkness or this type of shadow? Well, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, there's a scene where Sam and Frodo are journeying into Mordor, the land of shadow. And they're on, they're on their quest, and there's basically no water, uh, no food, storm, cloud, darkness. And to be covered in basically an artificial storm, cloud, darkness. And, and there's basically nothing bright in the whole land. Everything's discouraging. They can take a rest. And Frodo falls further. And so they crawl under a, a briar bush to take a rest. And Frodo falls asleep, and Sam, Sam isn't sleeping. And he, and he crawls out of his hiding place, and this is what he sees. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountain, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of that forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So in the passage we're going to study, we are going to see that God reveals Christ's glory like that light that, that transcends all that darkness. And, and the reason God is doing this in this passage is because the, passage, the previous passage to this is where he rejected and he's going to be questioned. He reveals that he's going to suffer many things, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. And if any of his one wants to follow him, they have to take up their own cross and follow him. And so what, what could keep the disciples going under, under a pronouncement like that? What could sustain their faith? And even you could ask that, us that question, what can keep us going through the sufferings and the trials of this life? And what can sustain our faith? Well, in today's passage, we're going to see that a sight of Christ's resurrected glory, just like the star that Sam saw, is all we need to show us that in the end, the shadow is only a small and passing thing, and there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. A sight of Christ's resurrection glory fuels and sustains faithful obedience and suffering unto death. So the point of this sermon is that the resurrection glory of Jesus reveals that he is the salvation of God, and so we must listen to him and believe in him. And so Jesus shows his disciples 
and us his resurrection glory twice. And each time there's an expected response. So the, the two points of the sermon are going to be, number one, listen, and number two, believe. So in each of these points, we're going to see a revelation of the resurrection, the proper response to that revelation, the failure of the disciples, and then Jesus' correction. Uh, so follow along as I read uh, verses 2 through 8 of Mark 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And so in these verses, it says that Jesus was transfigured before them, which means changed. And, and the way that it describes this change is with his clothes. His clothes became radiant as no one on earth could bleach them. There's not a laundromat in the world that could make that clothes that radiant. And these white clothes should bring to mind uh, something. So if you think about where do white clothes appear in the Bible, shining white clothes, it's always associated, or not always, but it, it certainly is associated with Christ's resurrection. So the men at the tomb when Jesus is raised are in white clothes. Uh, and then all through the book of Revelation, the, the white garments and the white robes and the white clothes are associated with the resurrection. So here we're seeing, in a sense, Christ's twofold glory. First, we're seeing his resurrection glory. And if you remember the previous verses from uh, Mark 8, uh, 38, uh, or sorry, Mark 9, 1, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And the phrase after six days in our passage in verse 2 is connecting us to that saying. So six days later, from that exact saying, Jesus is transfigured before them, and we're seeing that glory and the kingdom sort of an, an as-yet-out-of-time breaking into the present. So the future resurrection of Christ and all of that glory associated is breaking into the present for the disciples to see. And notice that. There, there's that verse, there appeared... Uh, let's see, uh, he was transfigured before them. So this is an event that is designed for the disciples. He's transfigured before them. Uh, don't, don't miss that. So God's or Jesus' resurrection glory is breaking in uh, to the present to them. And then there's also a divine glory here. So if you think back to when Moses saw um, God's, God's back and hid in the rock, and then his face was glowing, Moses was radiating God's glory, not his own. But in this, Jesus starts to shine and radiate before God's cloud, before God even appears in the cloud. So Jesus is radiating his own divine glory. So twofold glory here, resurrection glory and divine glory. And that's where we see Jesus' resurrection revealed. We also see Jesus' resurrection revealed in the significance of Moses and Elijah. So why do Moses and Elijah appear 
at the Transfiguration. Well, there's a literary device in the Bible called typology. And essentially what that is, is that it assumes that God's prior redemptive acts are recorded in Scripture and prefigure or form a paradigm for understanding God's future redemptive acts. So the so things in the past with Israel are sort of paradigmatic or a way of interpreting present events. Okay, so we should kind of expect that when we're seeing Old Testament characters that there may be some of this device going on and, and a way of interpreting what's happening. Okay, so what would be the, uh, the prior themes that, that Moses is, or that, um, that Mark and, and Jesus in this event are bringing up? Well, the main prior theme is the exodus out of Egypt. That's Israel's founding moment, if you will. And it's the paradigmatic salvation event. So all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, after the Exodus, so much of the time, salvation is discussed in Exodus terminology and language. Okay, so we're going to see essentially echoes of Exodus in this passage. So where do we see those echoes of Exodus in this passage? Uh, Well, if you remember, uh, after 40 days in the wilderness, Moses was supernaturally sustained and then came to the mountain, uh, and then he came to a high mountain, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was visited by a cloud. God showed up in the cloud, spoke uh, to Moses through that cloud. So there's, there's Exodus themes here. And then Elijah, if you're familiar with the story of Elijah in Exodus 18 and 19, Elijah goes and fights all the prophets of Baal and has this major victory with fire coming down out of heaven. And then he runs for his life away from Queen Jezebel, uh, the wicked queen who wants to seek his life. And where does he run? He runs to Horeb, which is another name for Sinai. So he runs to the mountain of God, the same one that Moses was at. He's sustained for 40 days miraculously in the wilderness, just like Moses. And uh, if you remember the scene where he's, he's hiding in the cave and he's listening for, does God appear in the earthquake? Does God appear in the wind does God, right? Uh, he's hiding in a cave, just like Moses hid in a cleft of a rock. And Yahweh passes by Moses as he's hiding in that cleft of the rock. Same thing happens with Elijah. Yahweh passes by Elijah, hiding in the cleft of the rock, and uh, his voice is, God appears in that small whisper, and Moses covers his face because he knows that no man can see God and live. And so in both episodes, Moses and Elijah here, God's physical manifestation occurs after God's people have rejected him in his covenant. So if you're in, in, in the Exodus account, Moses is on the mountain. The people do the whole golden calf incident. Moses comes down, breaks the stone tablets, goes back up. So it's after that rejection that God appears to Moses and gives him this, this visible manifestation of himself. And then uh, Elijah's whole accusation is on covenant breaking. Uh, in, in, uh, in 1 Kings 19, 9 through 10, uh, it says, He came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And, and so it's after that rejection that God shows up to, to Elijah. So in, in both of these 
episodes. What is the function of God showing up? Why, why does God show up? There's two things, really. One is to show the uniqueness of God's word and the importance of, of the covenant, that God keeps his covenant. So for Moses, God passes by him and gives him the stone tablets, the words of the covenant on the stone tablets. And, at, and for Elijah, Elijah's at the place, that place of covenant making. He's bringing up covenant breaking, and God's presence is in that low whisper, in his voice. And so we see that God's presence is uniquely in his words. But more than that, God showing up in these two instances serves to validate the prophet's message and mission. So these prophets were rejected by God's people. They were saying, the people have rejected your covenant. And God comes and says, I have not rejected my people and I have not rejected my covenant. And so God is endorsing his prophet and his message. So in these verses, we have, we have a, a divine endorsement of the prophets. Uh, that Isaiah developed, I guess, through the rest of Scripture. Well, we see in Isaiah that Isaiah, there's this grand prophecy in Isaiah of a new exodus out of bondage to the nations is from original exodus language. Uh, and, and in this exodus, it would also be led by a mediator like Moses, an intercessor, the suffering servant who is an idealized Israel and God's warrior. So the language of Isaiah is indicating that this new exodus, the, the one that's yet to come for Isaiah, is the exodus. It's the final exodus. And the first exodus was only a picture of that bigger exodus out of sin and death. So then how does Jesus sort of fill up these Old Testament themes? If, if these themes sort of form a paradigm for understanding the work of Jesus and what's being revealed here, how does Jesus do that? Well, there's some pointers here. So uh, Jesus goes up on a high mountain. Uh, there, there's a cloud. God speaks from the cloud. And so all that is Exodus language. And, and the presence of Moses and Elijah are pointing us to that. And so this teaches us, like it taught us in the Elijah and Moses incidents, that God's presence is uniquely in his word. And Jesus was rejected by God's people just like the other prophets. They didn't want a suffering servant. They wanted some sort of political warrior messiah who would make everything grand. And, and so God comes out of the cloud and says, listen to him. Which means that God's presence is still in his word. And that's actually the climax of the entire account, is the voice from heaven that says, listen to him. And so the, the manifestation of God with his word to Moses and Elijah pointed to God manifesting his presence to us in his word. Jesus is the word made flesh. John tells us that. And he's the presence of God. He's where God dwells with man. And so God is endorsing his prophet and his prophet's mission. So remember, right before this, Jesus prophesied his suffering and death. And the disciples are always uneasy or miss the point or even rebuke him like Peter did when Jesus prophesies his suffering and death. And this is a, a, a divine validation and ratification of Jesus' mission and ministry that says that Jesus is the suffering servant, the, the Messiah, and the divine son, and we need to listen to him. And there's also uh, some prophecy here that's being directly fulfilled. So in, uh, in Mo, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, God promised that, there would, that he would send a prophet like Moses says, the Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you listen, just as you desire of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. So, uh, just as Moses talked to them from Sinai, God prophesied that there would be a new prophet like Moses that would, that would talk to them. And the expectation that developed through the rest of the Old Testament is that this individual, this prophet like Moses, would be a single messianic individual. And that, his, uh, th- that, um, that he would fulfill that, that promise of a servant like Moses. So Moses is called the servant of the Lord. And if you think back to the servant songs in Isaiah... Uh, The servant of the Lord is the suffering servant. He's the one who delivers God's people out of bondage. And Jesus is that suffering servant. So Jesus is the new Moses. And just here we see that there's a prophet like, I will raise up for you a prophet like Moses. Here we see that prophet like Moses and God says, to him you shall listen. And now God comes out of the cloud at the transfiguration and says, it's to him you shall listen. And so we're seeing that uh, Jesus is, is ultimate here. Because after God says, listen to him, uh, Moses and Elijah disappear, the cloud disappears, and only Jesus remains. And so Jesus is the climax of salvation history, and he's the fulfillment of all that Moses and Elijah and the other prophets came to accomplish. Jesus is the only mediator and intercessor and teacher now. Hebrews 1-2 says, at long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so this is not, God is not like a, a nutritionist, like eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, eggs are good for you, or that trait of fat is bad, now it's good, now it's bad. God's not doing something, he's not just changing his mind here on who to listen to. Jesus is the culmination and the final fulfillment of all of prophetic prophecy, and that's why we must listen to him. And so what is the proper response to this? What are we supposed to do with this revelation? Well, it's right there. It's listen to him, not. And notice the response. Either we will listen to Jesus or we will not. And notice Peter's response uh, to seeing Jesus here, right? Uh, Peter says something about making three tents, and commentators read that, and they're like, we don't really know what he means by that. But the important point is what Mark does in verse 6. If you look at Mark, Mark 6, Mark just dismisses it as irrelevant, for he did not know what to say. So he just said something because he didn't know what to say. And I think as an application for us, we need to see that so often our words are irrelevant, aren't they? But God's words are not. So when you get together with your church family, whether it's play dates, sports games, lunch, uh, whatever it is, find a way to read God's words with each other. Uh, with your church family, because God's words are not irrelevant. Find a way to work that into your time together. Well, this is not just a command from God, but it's also a a convincing, like I said, God is convincing the disciples that uh, that this prophet is valid and he's to be listened to. In spite of their disappointment that he's going to be a suffering servant, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to die, they should listen to him because the Father has validated his mission and ministry. So what could keep the disciples going after Jesus revealed his cross and suffering? A view of the resurrected Christ. A sight of Christ's resurrection glory fuels and sustains faithful obedience and suffering unto death. So get a sight of the resurrected Christ daily in his word and in prayer. And listen to him and let him fill you 
with steadfastness. I recently was at the dentist and they recommended some procedure and I said, is this a nice to have, should have, or a must have? And of course they said it's a must have because they're trying to sell something. But this is not, this is a must have to, to see the resurrected Christ. If this is what it takes to get you through your day, if this is how you can get your bearings, is seeing Christ in his word, then it's a must have. And he is not trying to sell you something. He's trying to give you something. He's offering you himself. So what are you going to do this week to see the resurrected Christ every day? Or even if you want to think even smaller, what are you going to do tomorrow on Monday to see Christ in his word? Uh, we want to be seeing Christ always in his word because it's a must-have. So that's the revelation of the resurrected Christ here. And now we'll read uh, verses 9 through 13 uh, in terms of the disciples' failure and then Jesus' correction. So follow along as I read. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. And so here we see this command to silence in verse 19, right? Tell no one. And what that's doing is he's reinforcing what he said previously about suffering, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's not going to be deterred by anyone uh, who wants to make him into some sort of a political weapon uh, and prevent his death. He's going to his death because it's his mission, and he won't let anyone get in his way. But this also reveals his resurrection. The, the outcome of his suffering is resurrection. And so Jesus is revealing us, revealing that to the disciples. Now notice their response in verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. <clears throat> and I think here we see basically they obeyed in word only. There's some, some pointers in, in the commentaries and in the language that suggest that they, they squashed the resurrection. Uh, and, and they didn't, they didn't embrace what it meant. Uh, they, they kept it to themselves. So instead of embracing Christ's resurrection and the truth that he was saying, they basically just squashed it and let it be. And so there's an application here for us on don't just obey God's word. So they kept the matter to themselves, right? They obeyed God's word, but they did it by squashing it. And so we need to see that we should, we, we shouldn't just obey God's words, but we should embrace the truths behind them. So God says, don't worry, and we, and we absolutely should not worry, right? But we should also embrace the truth that we are worth much more than many sparrows and that God clothes the flowers. And with evangelism, don't just share the gospel. We should obey and share the gospel. But we should embrace the truths under that, that God saves his people through the proclamation of his word, through the bold proclamation of words. So embrace the truths underneath that. And then for contentment, don't just obey God's words when he says be content. We should embrace God's truth underneath that that says that these circumstances come from the loving hand of my heavenly Father who is in heaven. And then I think you can see too in verse 11 that the disciples don't listen to him. 
They, they says an accusation of sorts. So in, in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which we read earlier in the service, it talks about uh, Elijah coming first, uh, that he'd come as part of the, of, of the last days to restore all things. And so he would come basically before the end and herald the arrival of the end. And so they're really just accusing Jesus of being wrong. They're saying, don't you know that Elijah comes first and restores all things? So how could it be that you could die? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, if Elijah comes and restores all things, then you can't be rejected and killed. And so we need to see that we should not accuse Jesus when he doesn't tell us what we want. Do you accuse Jesus of not getting things right? When you don't get what you want, or when his plans are different than yours, or when a particular suffering or confusion comes into your life, do you accuse him of not getting things right? If you do accuse him, you're following in the footsteps of those who rejected him in faith and you're rejecting Jesus. So don't reject Jesus. Run to him in faith and repentance. Listening to Jesus means more than hearing. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we want to be listening to Jesus' word, but we, ne we need to be doers of the word. We need to be acting on what we're hearing. So the, the disciples miss this. They obey in word only and they don't really listen because they, and, and they're accusing him of being wrong. So what is Jesus' correction? In, in verses 12 and 13, he, he, uh, he gives this, this correction here. He says, Elijah does come. Malachi was right and your expectation is right. Elijah does come and his coming does herald the restoration of all things. But there's a twist. There's this twist in what is written. Right? And it's related to the Son of Man. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So these terms, suffering many things and treated with contempt, are coming from the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. Uh, how Jesus was despised and rejected by men. And so th this, Jesus is saying that the suffering here, suffering and rejection, are the subject of prior revelation. God has already revealed the suffering and rejection of the Son of Man. It's not a malfunction. It's according to what has written. So we should not question God's revelation. Do not attribute malfunctions to God's revelation. We should believe wholeheartedly all the things that God has revealed, even if it is contrary to our desires. And then in, thir in verse 13, Jesus says that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. And what's going on here is Jesus is saying that Elijah has come in John the Baptist. And there's multiple pointers in Mark's gospel here, but the easiest one is clothing. The, the camel's hair and a belt of leather is what Elijah wore and it's what John wore. Uh, and, and John's coming signaled the arrival of Jesus. He came to prepare the way. And so there's some parallels to Elijah there. But I think what's in view here on how... How does Jesus see Elijah, or sorry, John, filling up Elijah, fulfilling those, that, that prophecy of Elijah coming? Well, think back to Elijah. What did he do? He preached righteousness to a king illegitimately married to a wicked woman. So Elijah preached righteousness to Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel were the wicked queen and king and queen. Jezebel was a foreigner, so Ahab was illegitimately married to her. Uh, and she was wicked, and she wanted uh, his life. So now think of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist preached righteousness to Herod, who was illegitimately married to his brother's wife. 
and, uh, and Herod's wife, the illegitimate wife, wanted to kill John. And she actually did. She, killed, she had John beheaded and put his head on a platter. And so what we're seeing here is really Jezebel got her wish, so to speak, in Herodotus killing John. Uh, so Jezebel got her wish. She did to Elijah what Jezebel wanted to do to Elijah. And so Jesus is saying that John completed Elijah's mission. Elijah's mission, according to Malachi, was to preach repentance or removal from the land. It's one or the other. Either you repent or you get removed from the land. And you can't remain neutral to that mission because you can't remain neutral to Jesus and his mission. John preached repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so there's only two options here repentance or destruction. So how do we respond to that? We run to Jesus. We are poor and needy, and he will embrace you in his arms. So by way of application here, if you follow Jesus, there may come a time when they may do to you whatever they please. Uh, and it's not a malfunction. It's what is written, right? God, Jesus said that if they mistreated the master, how much more will they mistreat the servant? A servant is not better than his master. So there may come a time uh, in the near future, when uh, there's increasing hostility to Christianity. Maybe it's, maybe it's because of biblical views on human sexuality, and they may do whatever they please to you. Maybe you will lose jobs or reputation or even relationships. But take courage, the resurrection is coming. Trust in the nail-pierced hand that now sways the scepter of the universe. Join Jesus in his suffering and death in order to join him in his resurrection. Die to sin and self. So what can get you through suffering? A sight of the resurrected Christ. Look at the resurrected Christ. Embrace him, run to him, run to his arms, and trust in him and know his sweetness and see him in his word and talk to him in prayer. Of, of Christ in his glory. Let's turn to... Well, we looked at the first uh, revelation of, of Christ in his glory. Let's turn to the second one. Uh, in verses 14 through 27. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And when Jesus saw that the crowd, the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind 
can be driven out. This crane cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So in these verses, we see this, uh, this demon possession and idolatry. And demon possession and idolatry are connected in Mark uh, because the, the unclean spirits in Mark are contrasted with Jesus being the Holy One of God. And demonic activity is often connected to sin and idolatry in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 17 talks about uh, demons are false gods that are no god. And Psalm 106, 36 to 38 talks about faithless Israel. And there's an equating of idols and demons in there. So the, and, and clearly to a demon and, and a false god and a slave um, to that. And, and clearly he had sin mixed in there, right? It, he, was, he was being thrown into the fire, uh, and, it, and it's a sin to mar or deface the image of God. But I think the main thing to see is that this boy was in bondage. And so if the main thing to see is that he's in bondage, what, how can we relate our present context to this? Well, John 8.34 says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Uh, and Romans, Romans uh, 6.16 it says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So just as the boy was in bondage to the unclean spirit, leading toward death, our bondage uh, to sin leads to death. And I think we should see that, that sin is really addicting and, and, uh, and disturbing, and our sin is addicting and disturbing, and, and we're in bondage to it often. And so, uh, if we think about convulsing and foaming at the mouth, right? There are particular sins where we can convulse our bodies uh, and, and anger. Do you ever feeling what's in our hearts? So if you think about uh, shaking violently in anger, do you ever shake your body in anger, whether it's in traffic or kicking something or slamming a door, your anger as idolatry? And then... Uh, Sometimes with sexual sin, people uh, can be convulsing and foaming at the mouth, so to speak, in front of a screen. Is that any less disturbing or offensive to God than this demon possession? Do you see your sin in that way? And do you bring it to Jesus and ask him to help and to help your unbelief? Sin is addicting and it's messed up and it leads to death. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he can deliver us from this body of death. And children... I know that you sometimes uh, have anger and tantrum, and sometimes you can shake your whole body or your foot or your hand or throw stuff or kick stuff. And that shows what's in your heart. That shows that there's false gods and false worship in your heart. So children, when you're angry and you're tempted to show that anger with your body, think about God's law to love God with your body and to not be angry. And instead of being angry, ask God for help to repent and believe in Jesus, and have joy in him instead of rebelling with your body. So I'm not saying that these sins in particular are demon possessions, but there's a parallel here between the, the bondage to sin and the bondage to, uh, the, bondage to uh, the demon possession. All sin is destructive and addicting and leads to death. That is our human condition. So remember we're, the parallels to Exodus. Moses came down the mountain to see the idolatry of the golden calf, Jesus comes down the mountain of transfiguration and he sees this, this bondage and demon possession and really faithfulness, right? He comes down to the faithless generation. The disciples even get roped in with this description of a faithless generation and, and we're roped in there too, right? We are no better 
Every person in this room has faithlessness in our own hearts. And we need an intercessor. We need someone to intercede. Just like Moses interceded for the people of Israel, we need someone to intercede for us. And Jesus is that intercessor. Someone to work for our forgiveness. And Jesus is revealed as that intercessor by being revealed in, these pas- in this passage as the object of faith. So Jesus highlights the urgency of the situation there uh, in verse 19 when he asks, how long am I to bear with you? The, the situation is urgent. Uh, he, he doesn't have that much time before he's going to the crucifixion. How long does Jesus have to help these people not be faithless? Not that much, because the crucifixion is coming. And I think we, we should see it in our own life, right? Faithlessness is not tomorrow's problem. We cannot put it off. We don't know when our life will be required of us. We need, uh, we need Jesus now, and we need, we need to run to him now in faith. So then Jesus says, bring him to me in verse 19, and in verse 21, by asking again, how long? How long has this been happening to him? And it highlights the, the desperate need of this father, right? It's been happening since childhood. This is him with compassion. Uh, and, and, and the man asks, if you can, right? If you can, help me. And Jesus, Jesus repeats that back, if you can, and says all things are possible to one who believes. So what Jesus is saying here is, it's not an issue of power or ability. He's not saying, and he's also not saying, if you have enough faith, all things are possible. Jesus is inviting the man to come to him in faith. And so Jesus is inviting, don't let a lack of faith keep you from coming to Jesus. As, as the song said earlier in the sermon, service, if you tarry till you're able, you will never come at all. So what's important here is not the amount of faith, What's important here is the object of our faith, which is Jesus. And so the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Because he sees that it's not just the demon that needs to be cast out, but his own unbelief in his own heart. The heart of this story is not the that fall and the sin and unbelief is with unbelief. The father sees that that fall and the sin and unbelief it's not out there as if it's separate from him it's inside of him it's in his own heart so do you see that are you've been a christian for a long time you worry that you see that you still whether you're not a christian or whether you've been a christian for a long time you still have unbelief in your heart and you need that to be cast out and you need a miracle for that right and think back to to all the trials that we're going through right could we not also say that itself but the struggle for belief during the trial. Do you see that in your trials? That, that maybe God is, is bringing that trial into your life so that you can struggle with your unbelief and see that God is good, that he's in control, that he will provide, and that he is enough. The man came to Jesus for a miracle, and Jesus responds by inviting the man not just to receive a miracle, but to receive Jesus himself. You can ask for a miracle, but you can only trust and believe in a person. So notice that this man asks for help twice, right? The first time he says, if you can, help us. He's asked doubter. And this second time, he, has, he says, help me as I am. I'm a doubter. And this second cry is really an act of faith because he's calling on God to give him faith. He's internalized his need for Jesus, not just a miracle. And he's trusting in God rather than himself. 
The man came in trembling and weak faith, and that is enough. Jesus is pleased to bless even the smallest of faith. And so run to Jesus with whatever faith you have. It will be enough. He can help your unbelief. Run to him because he offers you himself. And what we're seeing here too is this deliverance, right? Jesus is being revealed as authority and power. So uh, in Mark 3, Jesus gets accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus responds, Satan's house can't be divided against itself or it wouldn't stand. I'm not part of Satan's house. I'm the strong man coming into Satan's house to, or to, no one can enter a strong man's house and, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger man. I've come into Satan's house. I've bound him and now I'm plundering his goods. I'm taking what belongs to him and I'm taking the Satan's kingdom and into his own. And so what is he plundering? He's plundering souls out of Satan's kingdom and into his own. And how does that plundering occur? It occurs by death and resurrection. We should see here that death and resurrection are pictured here uh, in, in the boy. So, uh, at verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And so these terms here, right, the boy is described as and almost seemed to be dead. And in the language of lifting up here, those same three words of, of taking by the hand, lifting and raising, those, those three words come from the raising of Jairus' daughter. If you remember, Jairus was the official. His daughter had died. Jesus takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and raises her. So we have resurrection language all through here. And I think we should really see um, what this means. I, I remember listening to the story uh, on the radio of an anonymous heroin addict. And two things stuck with me. He said, number one, if somebody died off a batch of heroin, I go try to get that batch because I know it's a better high and I'm that addicted. And then number two, he said, uh, he kind of hopes he gets arrested because that's the only way he could possibly imagine being free of his addiction. And I think we should see here that our addiction to sin and idolatry is even deeper than that. We won't be free of it if we get arrested. We actually need to die and be raised which is what Jesus, or what, what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you want to be free of sin, you need to actually die and be raised. The cross delivers us not only from the ruler of this world, but also from our own deadness and sin. So will you be raised with Christ? Will you cry out, I believe, help my unbelief? Will you turn from your addiction to your sin and run to Jesus and trust that he will receive you in his arms? So the proper response to this revelation of the resurrected Christ, right? Jesus is revealing his resurrection here because only one who has power to raise the dead can take the dead by the hand and lift them up. So, so Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So he's revealing the resurrection, just as we saw the resurrection pictured and prefigured in the transfiguration, we're seeing again through his actions here of raising the dead. So what's the proper response to that revelation of the resurrection of God? Believe. Believe that Jesus is the salvation of God 
Believe that Jesus can conquer sin and death and Satan. Believe that Jesus can help your unbelief. You need your unbelief cast out. The Christian life should be one of constantly crying, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, just like the disciples sort of failed to see the point after the transfiguration, they respond and miss the point here too. Look at verse 28. They asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And even their very question misses the point. They say, why could we not cast it out? They assume that they have the power in themselves to cast out the demon instead of relying on God's power and God's word. They can't, but he can. And I think we need to remember that with our evangelism and with our parenting. We can't save our kids, but he can. So don't be discouraged. Keep laboring and keep praying for your kids. Believe that he can cast out their unbelief and run to him and ask him for help. You can't, but he can. And so Jesus, Jesus corrects them, right? They miss the point, and they say, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus corrects them. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Because only in prayer do we fully acknowledge our helplessness and our dependency on him. It acknowledges and places faith in Jesus and his power to save. Only in prayer do we helplessly cast ourselves fully on Jesus as the one who can help. So pray. Cast yourself on him. Pray. One writer said that prayerlessness is practical atheism, meaning if you don't pray, you're living almost as if you were an atheist in practice. Because prayer is how we express our faith to God, and so we need to be praying. And thinking back to this, to, to this father here, shouldn't every prayer have in it a view of Christ and his person, his work and his resurrection glory? Shouldn't every prayer that we do be done in faith, and shouldn't every prayer have in it a desire for more faith. So every prayer that we pray should be a cry in some way of saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And so do you listen to Jesus? Do you believe? And do you pray? Or do you live a life of practical atheism? Ask him to cast out your unbelief and to help you pray. So we've seen two revelations of Jesus as we conclude here. Two revelations of Jesus and his, and his resurrection. Death and resurrection is the theme of this passage, and it's really the theme of the entire Bible. What will you do with the death and resurrection of Jesus? Thinking back to Sam in Lord of the Rings, he was, he was moved by the sight of that star and its beauty, and it, and it moved him to hope, and it enabled him to keep going and, and to carry out his mission and to have peace. Will you be moved by this passage? Will you be moved from not listening and unbelieving and be moved to listening and believing? And the only way you can be moved is by seeing the beauty and the light of the resurrected Christ. So what will you do with the revelation of the resurrected Christ? Will you see him? Will you let his beauty smite your heart and show you that in the end, the shadow is only a small and passing thing? Will you listen to him? Will you obey and not just be a hearer of the word only? Will you ask God for help to cast out and heal your unbelief? And will you pray and depend on God who raises the dead? Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would cast out our unbelief, that you would draw us to you, that you would show us more of Christ and help us to respond to him in faith and repentance and to go to him and trust that he will receive us in his arms. In Jesus' name, amen.